So many times in my work, I meet people who are a bit lost. They're not happy at work, but they don't really know what to do about it. Sometimes they don't even know why they're not happy. I can remember one of my clients, Shika. She was a young woman whose role on a production line had been made redundant. And like most people in that situation, Shika was actually glad. She told me she'd mismanaged the transition from school to work and that she ended up working on the line for eight years. Shika went on to use the enforced break from her job to shift into an area that better suited her, and she became a florist. I also talked with a law graduate who confessed to me that he didn't like writing and didn't think he was very good at it. He regretted having spent five years on his law degree and wasn't sure what type of work to pursue instead. To compound the issue, he was heading into one of the most depressed markets for lawyers in a long time, with little likelihood of picking up a role in a legal practice. What about you? Are you lost or are you found? When you're not clear about what motivates you, it's easy to make big career mistakes. Take me, for example. It's since becoming a career specialist myself that I realise I have two key drivers for job satisfaction. The first is to influence people. I have no desire to be a manager. I'm the most reluctant manager in the world. I like to use my skill with language or with my ideas to get people to do what I think they should do. But if they don't do it, I don't lose any sleep over it. And my second driver is to train people in a practical skill so that there is a noticeable difference in their ability and their confidence. And this shows up for me in a swimming pool. You know something's hardwired in you if there's nothing in it for you and if you actually risk getting a mouthful of abuse. But if I'm swimming next to you in a swimming pool and I notice that you have poor swimming technique, it'll be really hard for me not to lean across the lane rope and give you some tips because I hate to see people who aren't doing as well as they possibly could. But even though now I know what's important to me, many years ago, after I left my first job as a French teacher, I tried hospitality. And then I did an accounting degree, and I ended up in corporate and international banking. Now, I did love the team I worked with at the bank, but I don't really have natural attention to detail, and I often say I'm quite scatty, and my husband would agree. My spreadsheets had a few too many mistakes, and I used to say that I needed a double scotch after presenting those monthly board reports. So I had made several poor career choices. Welcome to Career Chinwags for the 21st Century. In this episode, we're going to look at how you can adapt that very famous phrase, knowledge is power, and use it to make better career choices. If my story resonated with you, you might be wondering how to avoid getting it wrong when you choose your next job and your next employer. I'm going to talk about an enjoyable and quite simple review that will give you that career clarity. I call it identifying the ideal world. Often I feel a bit embarrassed about talking to clients about the ideal world. It can all sound very fluffy and a bit airy-fairy. But somehow I manage to convince people to complete a series of what I call simple but telling exercises. We work together for about three or four hours and that's how detailed and how important this work is. Two things though. First of all, most of my clients end up loving this work. Even if there are no surprises in their results, They seem to almost relish the conversations we then have about the implications of their findings. Second, it just makes sense to me for you to understand what you need in the workplace to be happy. 
why settle for second best if you don't have to? When we do the work, there are four fundamental questions we answer. First, do your key work tasks suit your personality preferences? Second, does your work allow you to fulfill your core work values? Third, are you performing tasks that you are good at and that you enjoy doing? And fourth, do you connect with your workmates and do you like the culture of the work environment there? Before we start, I'd like to talk to you about quite a sad war story. One of my clients, John, was a lawyer from one of the big law firms. He'd been a technical specialist and had been given the additional task of selling a bit of legal software to his clients. Now, John was very good at this selling and he quite enjoyed it. He aroused the attention of one of the partners in the consulting practice and the consulting partner suggested that Joe come across and work in his division. Joe was flattered at being wooed by this very charismatic partner and he was also influenced by the supposed glamour of being a consultant. He decided it was a good career progression and off he went. It was a disaster. Joe went from being a valued senior employee to someone who was viewed as a non-performer. The partner was exasperated with him and wasn't the most supportive of bosses. And so lo and behold, Joe's role was made redundant. Unfortunately, the firm had backfilled his previous position, so there was no further place for Joe in the firm, and he had to go. To make matters worse, Joe was a very gentle, sensitive person, and I think he was very badly affected by his redundancy. As part of my support to Joe, we started our standard self-assessment exercises and talked through their implications. Now, Joe's results were striking. There was zero connection between what Joe thought was important and what Joe was good at and what Joe was interested in and the role of a consultant. Like me, Joe had made a serious career mistake. Joe ended up moving quite easily to another law firm. He was very good at what he did and he had an excellent reputation. But I suspect the whole episode left a bit of a scar on his psyche. And the worst aspect for me was that it need not have happened. If he had had a clear picture of his ideal world, Joe probably wouldn't have made the move. So today I'm going to give tips for each of those four questions so that you can avoid errors like Joe and me. Tip number one, assess your personality preferences. I don't think many people would disagree of the logic of spending as much of your time as possible doing tasks that are linked with your preferences. The trouble is you need to decide which tool to use. A few years ago, I attended an International Careers Consultants Conference in Chicago, and it became a bit of a joke. Person after person would get up and talk about using MBTI to look at personality preferences. I find MBTI just so useful to help people think through their preferences and then to link them back to their career. It's a perfect tool. It's not too detailed and it's not too superficial. But I can hear you asking, well, where's the proof about Myers-Briggs? It's just a model. And I think up until recently, you would have a point. MBTI builds on Carl Jung's work, and of course, Jung never looked inside a person's brain. There's been no validation of the MBTI. There is a guy called Dario Nardi, Dr. Dario Nardi, and he's done a lot of work identifying which areas of the brain light up when people are doing activities that fit well with their own preferences. There's a very fascinating YouTube presentation where he's invited to talk to the staff at Google. It's very long, but it's very interesting, and there's a link for you on the show notes if you are interested. For the first time, there's actually some science behind the theory. I think you need to do the MBTI with a proper accredited person. 
One of my friends in London told me with great conviction that he was an extrovert, and I think I'd say he's probably one of the most introverted people I've ever met. So to me, there's no point going online and doing one of those free online assessments. Myers-Briggs, if it's done properly, is not about your behavior. It helps you uncover your hardwired preferences. If I look at me, for example, my MBTI profile is an ENTP. Now, ENTPs are often called life's entrepreneurs, and I am an entrepreneur not as in wanting to have a huge empire in life, which believe me, I don't. It's really wanting to forge my own pathway in life. By the way, it's not meant to be a cop-out. As an ENTP, it doesn't mean I can slide into meetings late saying, well, what do you expect? We peas are never on time. And I actually have very good attention to detail, which I learnt from my banking days after doing all those board reports. I just don't want to spend my weekends that way. An added bonus of MBTI is I think you gain a lot of respect for the other preferences. My husband, Phil, gets used all the time, and I can remember the first time I went shopping with him, and he was so systematic, it just drove me crazy. And then I just realised, well, that's how somebody with an S preference would shop. So I don't judge him, I just don't shop with him, I meet him for coffee afterwards. So if you have just one hour to work with a career practitioner on career stuff, I absolutely recommend that you explore your personality preferences using MBTI. Tip number two, assess your career values. Even though I believe that matching your work to your personality preferences is important, I also agree with fellow specialists that the most critical element for career happiness is found in your individual career values. Now, we're not talking about life values here. We're not talking about truth, honesty, justice in the American way. We're talking about what is it that you need at work to be happy. My number one career value is independence. I have a strong need to set my own pathway in life and often call myself unemployable now. I think that's why I work for myself. Now, there's lots of career values exercises out there and many of them are free. They're really all the same. They'll present you with a series of qualities and you make a choice as to which are the most important for you. I use the famous Dell card sorts, but honestly, there's plenty of free resources on the internet for you. And of course, Richard Bowles' very famous book, What Colour Is Your Parachute, contains an exercise in it to help you identify your values. Once you've written your values down, you need to choose your top seven and rank them from one to seven. And then finally, Put a tick next to each value if it is satisfied in your current work environment. I like my clients to be able to tick at least four out of the seven values, and if they can only tick four, that they tick the top four, not the bottom four. That's why the ranking is important. And this is really your stay or go conversation. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but most career experts and most people would argue that if you stay in a job where you are not happy, more than, say, a year, you are the rare person who does not become damaged by that. So this is really your number one analysis. And of course, you can use this information for each job as it appears, each possible job, to decide whether you think that work environment would suit your values. Tip number three, assess your skills and interests. Many Australians, I think, work in jobs where there's an excellent match between their skills and interests and the core aspects of the role. And I think it's our free and easy culture that tends to encourage kids to study what they want at school and then continue studying afterwards and or going into a job where they would be doing those activities. 
Sometimes those things go wrong, in which case it's very important for you to assess your key drivers. Be careful here. It's not enough to just enjoy an activity or it's not enough to just be very good at the activity. We want both. We want you to enjoy it and be good at it. So, for example, because of my teaching background, I think I'm a good trainer, but I don't like it. I don't like getting up and doing a song and dance and not having a relationship with people. So I really do not want to earn my living that way. You will find your greatest happiness when you're performing tasks that combine enjoyment and skill. Again, there are activities where you can assess your skills. I use the Nowdell card sorts. Again, there'll be plenty of sites on the internet where you can find useful tools as well. And the results will give you a clear picture of tasks that you should be working on at work. And an added bonus is that they will highlight your transferable skills. And of course, these are the skills that you would look to sell in an interview. Tip number four, have a think about your workmates and the work environment that you like to be in. And I call that ideal job fit. It's really easy to get swept up in the excitement of a job offer. These are issues that you need to think through. So firstly, consider what sort of workmates you relate to. And I think we've all been in workplaces where the people have either made it or made it horrible. Richard Bowles' party game in his book, uh, What Colour is Your Parachute? He's got a quick activity called the party game. And he takes the very famous Holland code, which is usually used for kids at school to help them decide which way to head. He takes that and he uses it to describe types of people in the workplace. He asks you to think about if you're at a party, which would be the group that you would naturally gravitate to. So he's trying to get you to think about what people you like to be with. I can get on with most people, but some people don't realize they should be making an effort to get on with people where there's no natural connection. They don't make the effort and they never really understand why there's not a connection at work. Or the act of having to make an effort can drain your energy. So the best bet is to actually be working with people who you're on the same wavelength with. You also need to assess tangible factors. So when I was at the bank, back then they believed that you should be promoted through longevity. Now that is fundamentally incompatible with my value system. So things like promotion, things like pay increases, even little things like how much travel do you want to do? How much commute time do you want to have? These are issues for you to think about, including what sectors do you want to work in? But of course, the final thing in this grab bag is the intangible factors. And we're really talking here about the culture of the organization and the way the boss is. And these days with LinkedIn and websites like glassdoor.com, it's much easier for you to find out the reality of what it is you'd be walking into. I want to finish off with another war story. A client of mine asked me to deliver my very favorite program to one of their senior employees. It's called Career Compass, and it's a little bit like the self-assessment, and then we go on and use the additional time to create a pathway. From this particular client's perspective, the woman, whose name was Angie, was causing them a lot of grief. She'd been engaged initially as a consultant, and she'd been so good as a consultant that they thought it would be great to bring her on as an employee. And it just didn't work at all. She alienated most of her colleagues and she clearly wasn't happy either. Again, like Joe, when we did the self-assessment exercises, there was zero connection between what she was good at, what she wanted to do and the reality of the work. So for example, as a consultant, Angie hadn't needed to form relationships with people. You have a really superficial relationship with people when you walk into an organization as a consultant. 
And she told me she just wasn't interested in doing the chit chat and how did the football go and trying to have a more meaningful relationship with the people at work. The reason I'm telling you this story is I've never seen anything like it. The very next day, Angie resigned. She went back to her life as a consultant. Just some final thoughts. I really do love the work I do, as you can probably tell, and I can remember the look on the face of a young client of mine where he said, I never realized that you could do these simple activities and that they would help you work out what to do in life and how to be happier. He had started two mainstream degrees, dropped out because he didn't like it and he wasn't very good at it, and ended up as a payroll clerk. Because of our work together, we were able to identify a more suitable path and he went on to be a project manager and has been happily doing this work for three or four years now. So what about you? Let's say there's a a magician with a magic wand who waves his wand and says, abracadabra, you can do what you want. Do you actually know what it is that you want? Do you know what your absolute preferences are in relation to the world of work? If not, here's your chance. Identify your ideal world and then use that information to make sure you attain this ideal world. Now, I still haven't done many podcasts and I don't, I think I've got one review now and I don't have many subscribers. So if you like what you've heard, I'd love it if you could share this podcast or leave a review. At this stage, I'm doing a podcast every fortnight and next episode, I'm going to talk about words that damage you at work and in interviews. Remember, if you want to review what we've talked about, check out the full show notes at careerconsult.com.au. There you'll find a full article on the topic, an infographic and a video that summarize the different elements and links to any tools or resources that I've talked about. I'll repeat that, careerconsult.com.au. And I do a mail out once a fortnight of videos, blogs, and infographics. If you're interested, you'll find a sign-up form on the website. As always, let's finish with the hashtag. Hashtag, why not be happy at work?